Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of the Oxygen Starved podcast, where we bring you your adventure books and conversation from 11,000 feet in the beautiful Eastern Sierra. I'm your co-host Christopher, and with me is... Stacy. Co-host Stacy and producer Doug. Hey Doug. Good Yo, morning, Doug. how's it going guys? It's going great. How's it, how's it going with you? Good. I understand uh, Stacy is surfing today. you know as we are all expanding and getting comfortable into the remote work lifestyle especially as the three of us have learned to record this podcast remotely um you know we've we've begun to spread our wings a little bit and you know doug you and i are still up in the eastern sierra but stacy has gone down to sea level for the week pushing pushing the boundaries of remote working (laughs) gotcha gotcha How's it, how's it like to live with all that extra oxygen in the air, Stace? Are you a little loopy? It, it feels pretty good, but, you know, it's, it's balanced by the traffic. <laughs> yeah, so Stace is down south um, next to the beautiful ocean for a little bit, which she has earned. So, um, yeah, we are here to bring you your adventure books and conversation. And this week's adventure is a very cool one and one that I've never into. So what we wanted to talk about was the Crowley columns. And um, before I turn it over to Stace, who will bring all the information, I just want to remind our listeners, Crowley Lake is kind of in the southern third of Mono County. It is a really popular fishing spot. Um, It's also just like, you know, a, a roadside attraction. It's kind of like one of the the markers that lets you know you're getting really close to the mountains when you're driving up from the south. It wasn't always a lake. It's actually a reservoir that was formed in 1941 when LADWP built the Long Valley Dam and dammed up what was largely a meadow with the Owens River running through it into what be- eventually became Crowley Lake. And it was named for Father Crowley, who was an influential Eastside priest. They called him the Desert Padre. Um, who during the early 20th century, the 20s and 30s and what have you, um, rallied the locals who were kind of disenfranchised by the water diversion um, to L.A. to push tourism as a a strong industry, a way to bring revenue to the Eastern Sierra area. Um, He was really famous, really beloved, and he was killed in an auto accident, tragically, in 1940, about 20 miles north of Red Rock Canyon on Highway 14, way south of here. But, you know, they named not just Crowley Lake for him. They named uh, Crowley Point in Death Valley. Um, You know, he was just a really well-respected person. If you happen to stop by the Crowley Lake Library on Crowley Lake Drive, just off of 395, you'll see... Um, a memorial plaque to Father Crowley um, that you can read while overlooking the lake in the distance. So that's you know kind of the context. Stace, right. what did you what did you go out to see? Um, so we went out to see the Crowley Columns, um, which is a famous um, geological formation, um, if you will. 
And um, we've been there before. And Christopher, we will have to get you out there because it's they're they're really cool. So the columns, there's actually about 5,000 columns that, that rise up out of the sand um, in a, about a two to three mile, square mile area. So it, it's very um, surreal looking. Like when you go down there, you think you are on the set of a science fiction movie or maybe like Captain Kirk is going to come out with his posse and fight aliens or something. It's, <laughs> it's um, are it's, they big columns? I mean, can you put your arms around them? Are they skinny columns? So, so they're they're mostly pretty skinny. You can put you can put your arms around them for sure, and um, we'll post some pictures on on our website. So um, and on our Instagram page, so listeners can check it out. But, but they're very uniform. That's what's so interesting is that you have all these columns and they're all kind of clustered together and they're all fairly uniform in width. Mm-hmm. And um, in one section, they come, they rise up. You can see the individual columns coming out of the sand. And then there's like an erosion area where they're all smoothed over and it looks like it's solid like a solid mountain or a solid rock. And then above that, you see the rest of the columns sticking out. Oh, wow. Like, like little chimneys. So it's, that's pretty cool. But they were once, once upon a time, all these columns were underwater and this, and that the whole area where I live now was, you know, underwater. And then about 760,000 years ago, there was a hydrothermal eruption um, and that eruption was about 2,000 times larger than Mount St. Helens. And that wow. was what created the Long Valley Caldera. And right. I, should, I should give a shout out to our resident, our podcast resident geologist, Joe Adler, because he <laughs> gave us all this information. And we, we might be the only podcast to have a resident geologist. So, you know, <laughs> so lucky. I love that. <laughs> so um so um joe's given you know gave me a little uh lecture information on on this um as we were cruising through all these columns but the columns they they come up so we've talked about the bishop tuff before right. and it's just kind of like the the land that you know makes up the land here so the columns come up through the bishop tuff um and uh most likely they this was this happened because the hydrothermal fluids or the hot gases they moved through the tuff um and they cooked the edges (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, and then that created an area more resistant to erosion. So that's why these columns have stayed all this time. So they were and like vents. They were like vents kind yes. of in a way? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Okay. Well done. You would get an A in geology. <laughs> I'm working towards it. Good job. Um, yeah, so after the the fluid intrusion, after that stopped, um, the tough, which – is a, is essentially consolidated ash. Okay. Um, that 
you know, moved in from above and filled in all the holes and created the, you know, just like stacked on top of each other and created these columns. So it's really, really neat. And it's not, you can't always get to the columns because um, if there, if Crowley Lake is very full, the water, you know, goes right up and into them. Okay. Um, and then, you know, there's no place to kind of walk around, but, um, because of, because of the fires, because of the need for more power down in Los Angeles County, um, they recently lowered the lake level. So have more water. So there's a big amount of beach right now. So now is a good time to, if you want to go check them out to go do so, because you can approach them either by, you know, via boat, right? You know, if you're out on the lake, or or paddleboard or kayak or whatever, um, or you can um, go like we did. So we drove down um, Owens Gorge Road and you know parked on the hillside and then we hiked we hiked down. So it was about about a four mile day of hiking. Um, from where we park to the columns and there's a bunch of caves too, that you can go in and explore. And, um, those are pretty neat too. They're, it's a little scary going into (laughs) the caves, you know, especially if you're like me and you don't like bats, you know, Yes, I think um, we, we covered this we on have, the last we, podcast. We did. <laughs> Not to be redundant, but I don't like bats. Um, and But they're really, really cool. And, of course, we brought Lola, the dog, um, with us. And she had a great time, you know, running in and out of the columns and the caves and the lake. And um, That's great. So it, it, was, it was super cool. And... Um, like I said, we'll, we'll post some pictures so everybody can check it out and see what they're like. And while we still have some few nice um, weeks left um, before the snow flies, I encourage listeners that are around to go check it out. Yeah, you know, I've seen, you know, people Instagram photos of the mm-hmm. columns quite frequently yeah. on some of the, the social media feeds that I follow. And I think they're pretty stunning. So, it's definitely on my list to go visit and listeners, we would encourage you um, to appreciate these things. When you go out and visit, just be respectful of, of the countryside and nature and um, treat it so that other people can enjoy it after you. Um, yeah. And in the meantime, you know, put on some sunscreen. The sun is out. It's a beautiful day. Uh, great for going outside and uh, we'll be right back. Oxygen, a colorless, Odorless reactive gas, the chemical element of atomic number eight and the life-supporting component of the air. Starved. Suffering a severe and damaging lack of basic material and cultural benefits. Oxygen Starved Podcast. A colorless, odorless, culture-packed, nutritious podcast considering books, describing Mono County adventure, and engaging in informative conversation with colorful Eastside Sierra locals. Download it now. Welcome back, listeners. We have arrived at the B book section of our podcast. Time for the cheer. Yay! Yay. Okay, got that out of the way. (laughs) 
So this week, we are talking about books about, not about animals, but books that feature animals. And this, another idea that I had, and I don't know why, I can't remember why. Oh, I, well, basically I, because the book that I'm going to talk about, I really wanted to read and I wanted an excuse to read it. So this is as good as any, but Christopher, you read a really great book that features an animal and I'm going to kick it to you to tell us about it. I did. And um, I don't remember arguing with you very much on this topic since I love reading about animals anyway. Yes. And I know many of our listeners do. So the book that I chose to read came out recently, just this, this year, and it's called Running with Sherman, The Donkey with the Heart of a Hero by Christopher McDougall. <laughs> many of you will know uh, or recognize the name uh, Christopher McDougall, if you're a runner, a serious runner, he's written about running before. I think Stace, you had, you had heard about him through that context. Yes. I've, I've, I've read at least one of his books. Yeah. He wrote, um, born to run, which I think was his previous big book. I think he started or, or kind of made popular the barefoot running movement, all that kind of stuff. And he, and his wife and, and young children live on a farm, a kind of menagerie of many rescued animals in central Pennsylvania. And what this book is about is he adopts a down on its heels donkey who'd been rescued from a hoarder. And this is Sherman. Uh, Sherman arrived in very bad shape and is what he learned because um, he'd never had a donkey before. <laughs> so he's working <laughs> with, a, with another person who lived on a farm nearby who did, this woman named Tanya, um, was that as much as Sherman needed physical help for recovery, there was a lot wrong with him physically. He also needed mental help. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was kind of dejected and there was really kind of, he needed a reason to live. And what this woman said is donkeys need a purpose. They need a job. So mm-hmm. that kind of turned it into, um, you know, a quest for McDougal to kind of heal this donkey, not just physically, but mentally as well. And so the crazy idea he picks up is burrow racing. Burrow <laughs> and donkey are the same thing, right? But yeah, you know, I'd never heard of it before this book. I bet a lot of listeners had not heard of it before. Um, but he had heard about burrow racing in this race in, in high altitude in the Rockies, and he decides to train Sherman for the race. So, you know, we had chatted with Andrew Castor a couple episodes about, ago about like how to train as a runner and, and deal with different things. I'm, I'm, <laughs> this book is about training a donkey to be a distance runner, which was kind of fascinating. And I just thought it was fascinating that donkeys even will do this at all. So right. a little bit of context for that pack burrow racing is believe it or not, the official summer heritage sport in Colorado. It happens in multiple towns in the area and and other States in the West now. And it's thought to derive from mining days when prospectors would take the donkeys along to carry their supplies Mm -hmm. and they walked alongside on a lead rope. So the, the only difference now is that they have to run in a typical burrow race, a runner and a burrow travel, uh, course together, with the runner leading the burrow on the rope, the donkey on the rope, riding isn't allowed. In fact, um, the the donkey can ride the person. The person can carry the burrow. <laughs> the burrow cannot carry the human. Um, and the burrow must be on a lead rope, which is limited to 15 feet. And um, they must also carry a pack saddle with 33 pounds of traditional mining gear, which must include a pick, 
a gold pan and a shovel. So wow. picture this, picture the starting line. There's all these runners, mostly in typical running gear, bibs, you know, technicals, right. shorts and shirts and fancy running shoes for um, cross country running. And next to each one is a donkey with gear on its back that includes a pick, a gold pan, and a shovel. So it's just kind of a curious kind wow. of chaotic thing to, to imagine at all. So as he prepares for this, uh, McDougal decides to create a team. Um, and he enlists fellow donkeys, Matilda and Flower, to make out the donkey team. And they each kind of have their own personality, and that devolves into their own role to play in a team, which Mm -hmm. uh, makes a lot of sense. And then he enlists his wife, Mika, and this college-age kid named Zeke, um, who's going through some mental stuff of his own, to fill out the human runner roster. So there's three humans and three donkeys, and then they start training obsessively, just like any runner would. Right. And what he describes is an experience of um, kind of a battle of wills that leads to a melding of minds through a lot of different layers. Um, you know, unlike other animals such as horses or dogs, donkeys cannot be trained with fear as a motivation. They have no problem refusing to do something until they decide it's worth doing. Right. And so convincing them that they want to do something is part of the challenge that McDougal is facing. Convincing them that they want to go running, that they want to go running with him, and that they're going to overcome all their own skittishness because they're also notoriously skittish. They can... Right be nervous of asphalt. Um, Sherman doesn't want to put his hooves on asphalt when he first arrives. Um, ponds, wet spots in the road, wow. a flash of orange vests, streams, little rivulets that go under the road in a culvert. You don't even see the water. You just hear it. Donkeys can, if they're afraid of it, they will just stop and refuse to budge. So, um, you know, he describes a lot of dealing with these tidbits in, in a very humorous Bill Bryson kind of style. Yeah. Um, over time, the Zeke and Sherman relationship, Zeke and Sherman are the two that run together. Um, their relationship becomes the standout. They really help each other out. Zeke is a college age man and experiencing severe bouts of depression. Mm. And this is one way he, uh, enlists to cope with his own mental issues. And, you know, the, their bonding is really touching, um, yeah. throughout the course of it. There's a further colorful cast of characters who grace these pages from the Amish neighbors. They are in the middle of of, of Pennsylvania, remember, right. including a midnight Amish running club that is darn <laughs> serious. And they are like killer runners. And, you know, the women who participate, who are Amish, at least, wear their Amish. They wear the white bonnet and the dress while they're they're running. Wow. It's just utterly fascinating. The farm neighbor, Tanya, who is a crucial friend in teaching McDougal about donkeys when Sherman first arrives and she connects him with Flower and Matilda. A whole bunch of crazy donkey runners, these people mm-hmm. who go into these races. Um, you kind of got to have one screw loose to do this. Uh-huh. Um, they ha- it, a couple of freewheeling take no prisoners women who step in last minute to drive the donkey team to the race in Colorado um, when Tanya is injured and can't drive them. Um, they become part of this colorful cast. And then along the way throughout the book, McDougal sidetracks to explain individual backgrounds, to lay context for the race itself. 
Mm-hmm. And it brings in occasional experts, such as dog behavior experts, Alexander Horowitz, who um, Inside of a Dog is a book that I've talked about on the podcast before, mm-hmm. and Cesar Milan, the dog yes, whisperer. The dog I've never, whisperer. Yeah, I've never watched him, but he's part of this book as well. And overall, you know, it's a really charming book. Um, it's pleasing and it's often humorous. Uh, and it hits on those themes of what you would expect, perseverance, grit, mental wellness, the importance of community because it really does take a village to run with a donkey. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just the incredible relationships that arise between humans and animals out of yeah. shared purpose and what it, you know, think about all the teams you've been on and how, when you've accomplished something as a team, how great you all feel together, right. you get that same feeling, even if three of you are donkeys. So um, <laughs> this is this is Running with Sherman by Christopher McDougall. We have it in the library. Um, it's in the bookstores now. I really do recommend it. Awesome. Well, it sounds like Sherman in your book has a lot of similar traits to the animal in my book that I read about. Yeah. So tell um, us about it. Yeah. So I finally read Seabiscuit, an American legend mm-hmm. by Laura Hillenbrand. Right. And this is not a new book. This was published in 1999. And I'm sure many of our listeners have seen the movie, uh, which came out in 2003. And the movie is one is one of my favorite movies. And I've always wanted to read the book. And so hence this topic. <laughs> and we're talking about it today. So um, Seabiscuit won, actually won the William Hill Sports Book of the Year Award. Um, after it was published and the, you know, if any of you have read any, have read Unbroken, which was also right. by Laura Hillenbrand, also turned into a movie. She is a meticulous researcher <clears throat> and she, she researches, like she spent four years just doing the research. She had written a, an article about Seabiscuit. Right. Um, and was so intrigued by his story that she decided to dive deeper and spent four years researching um, to write this book. Yeah. And she, she just does not leave any stone unturned. Um, so, you know, briefly, Seabiscuit is the story of a racehorse. He is the racehorse. Right. And he is the most unlikely candidate to be a champion. You know, <laughs> it does sound like Sherman. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. And he's got some, you know, social emotional issues too. So not only is he physically not built like a typical racehorse, um, you know, he's shorter. He's got a fun- funky forelegs. There's things wrong with his knees. Um, he loves to sleep and eat. Um, and, um, you know, he just, he's very stubborn. He's mean at the beginning, you know, he was kind of, so when, so he, so he is the, the animal main character. And then there are three men who rally around him, uh, to, to make him the champion that he is. And the, the first is the owner, his owner is Charles Howard, who brought Buick cars to the West coast. Okay. Um, and then Tom Smith was the trainer and Tom Smith like didn't 
he did not have human relationships. Okay. He had relationships with, I mean, like, you know, friendships. He didn't have any human friendships, but he you really knew how to take care of horses. Yeah. And then the jockey was Red Pollard. And Red Pollard had been abandoned by his family during the, um, the, when there was a, a, he grew up in Edmonton in Canada mm-hmm. and his family fell on financial hard times and they had like seven kids and they kind of cast him out. So, you know, we can't, t- you're, you're older, you've got to go out and make your way. Right. So, you know, each one of these gentlemen had their own issues. Charles Howard had uh, lost a child. His oldest son or second oldest son had, had was killed in a uh, car accident uh, when Charles was out of the country. Um, he had, you know, he never really recovered from that trauma. Um, you know, you have Tom Smith, who's kind of this, this loner kind of goes all over, you know, from racetrack to racetrack, trying to train horses. And then, you know, you have Red Pollard who has his issues and these three are all brought together by Seabiscuit. And he, you know, you, you spoke of when you were talking about running with Sherman, you spoke of needing donkeys, needing a purpose. Yeah. So Seabiscuit became these guys purpose. And when he started, when Seabiscuit realized that he was being cared for and, you know, loved and admired, you know, he, his career really started to take off. So, I mean, this is definitely, if you like stories about underdogs rising to the top (laughs) and overcoming adversity this is this is a great story. This is a great book to read. And the I was amazed. No, so I've seen the movie multiple times. Okay. And what I was amazed is that the way Hillenbrand writes the race descriptions of when Seabiscuit is racing, mm-hmm. there there were seriously times where I was like gripping my book so tightly, or I would have to like reach out and grab my husband's arm. And like, I was so, I had so much anxiety. It was <laughs> reading. And I knew, even though I knew what the outcome was, cause I had right. seen the movie. So, um, it was, you know, in that sense, it was very exciting to read. And the, the tone of the book is very, it makes it very easy to read. You know, it's it's very detailed. Like I said, it's very well researched, um, but yet you don't get like bored or you know mired in the details. You you want to know these things. The, you know, the way she writes inspires you to want to know these things. Yeah, like a good nonfiction narrative nonfiction writer. You know, she mm-hmm. is great at pacing. Yes. And unfolding the story in the way that you describe it can create that tension, that kind of edge of seat tension. She did it in both Seabiscuit and Unbroken, both mm-hmm. of which were made into to movies. Right. You know? Exactly. Yeah. So um, I really, really enjoyed this book. And and I do have to say that there were elements of Seabiscuit's personality that remind me so much of Lola, my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> in what way? Well, you know, Seabiscuit was kind of, he wasn't necessarily abused um, when he was a young colt, but, you know, he was used to his purpose as a, as a young horse was to increase the confidence of other horses that the owners at the time thought could win races. Right. Because they didn't think Seabiscuit could. So he really like, he had a confidence issue. He didn't feel loved or cared for. And, you know, Lola is a rescue dog. Mm-hmm. She, she was, um, she was not paid attention to by the, the first people who owned her. She was ignored and kind of left just like outside for days right. at a time. That's not good. And, um, so, you know, she has, she, when she, came to us, she had a bit of a confidence issue. And, you know, she didn't know that she was going to be so loved as she is. And so, it, you know, sometimes I call her Seabiscuit <laughs> <laughs> when she's running because she, she, you know, she has that big stride and, but, you know, she, that just from, she just reminded me of, some of the things that she's gone through were similar to what Seabiscuit went through. But, um, well, that's yeah. kind of indicative of, of people, the special people who adopt who rescue pets, right? Um, you know, we kind of, you know, all of our animals are, are rescues as well. And, you know, us and all of our friends who do this kind of stuff as well, we kind of bring that that to the relationship at the beginning, right? We're, yeah. we're rescuing a pet and we're going to, we are acknowledging at the very outset that we're going to give them a home and give them love and give, and kind of help them build that confidence. And, right. and, and as part of the, the, one of the rewards that we get out of our mm-hmm. relationships with, with our pets, our, you know, our, I have a geriatric cocker spaniel sleeping halfway under the bed right next to me right now. <laughs> And, you know, like Sherman, we've tried to take her hiking, um, but she knows her limits and will just stop and lay down in the trail. We don't even try anymore. (laughs) She has an excuse, you know, but they all come with their own issues. Absolutely. um, And you learn what those issues are and you help them get beyond it or at least cope with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely a theme in both of our books. Absolutely. And, you know, that's, I think that's one of the things when you read a a book about an animal or that features an animal, you, you relearn that, that lesson that, you know, animals have, they have feelings, they have, um, intuition and instincts and heart. And, you know, they, they, they demand attention. They demand, you know, love and, um, you know, it's a good reminder. And they deserve it. Absolutely. So that was fun. Uh, listeners, if you, if you've read a book that features an animal, let us know what it was and what you thought of it. We'd love to hear from you and hear your input. And in the meantime, take a deep breath and we'll be right back. You're dialed in to Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet, originating from the slopes of Mammoth Mountain in Mono County, California. You can find us at SoundCloud. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us at OxygenStarvedPodcast.com. Just make sure you find us. 
Welcome back, listeners, to the C, the conversation segment of the Oxygen Starved podcast, where we bring you a local uh, individual or organization who lends some unique uh, unique color to the Eastern Sierra in our live, work, play lifestyle. So today we are really excited to be joined by the head of the executive director of the Eastern Sierra Land Trust, Kay Ogden. Welcome, Kay. Hi, Kay. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. You've been really busy recently. (laughs) We recently, in our last podcast, uh, listeners will recognize Eastern Sierra Land Trust. We talked a little bit about that with Bill Bramlett and the Benton Hot Springs conservation easement. So we're really excited you could join us today. And um, we always ask our, our guests, Kay, you know, how did you end up running the Eastern Sierra Land Trust? So can you tell, give us your origin story. How did you end up here doing this and what do you do? And what do I do? It's kind of a great (laughs) question. (laughs) Well, it was kind of a roundabout way to becoming an executive director. Uh, But I'll say at the very beginning that my father used to take us camping, you know, when I was a kid, Mm -hmm. he moved, he moved from the mountains of Utah to Southern California deserts. And he was enthralled. He was just enthralled by this stark and beautiful and diverse landscape. So we'd go out there as often as we could. And he would always remind me when we're out there on our walks that we were visiting, that it wasn't our home, and we needed to be respectful. And I think that really started to lay the foundation for my work to protect natural resources, because it's not only great for the resources and the animals and people to recreate in, it's, I think there's a lot of healing powers in nature as well. Right. But then after that, I, um, I've always been an outdoor person. I've done ultra endurance cycling. I had my own marketing and photography business in Southern California. And that's where I got involved in my first land protection campaign, which was save Laguna Canyon. And that campaign taught me because it was on the ballot to raise personal property taxes in an area that is um, heavily one party over another that's not often known for wanting to raise property taxes. Mm -hmm. And the bond passed by almost 80%. My goodness. Yes. And it was a reminder that, you know, it's the common values. It's the common values. And we can, when we can put the other stuff aside and find that sweet spot of what we care about the land, what it brings to us, we can really make amazing things happen. Very um, after, true. Thanks. You know, I really think people forget that we can find a middle place. We can find that sweet spot. Still, we can. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's definitely, it's definitely true in the Eastern Sierra where there's people from all over the, the spectrum, the ideological spectrum, but we're all, many of us are here for the same reason, right? It's that nature and getting out of nature and especially during COVID shutdown. So many of us appreciate being able to step outside into this wide open or up into a canyon. We're so, so blessed, right? Yeah. So Kay, when your dad ever would take you camping, did you all ever come up to the east, you know, as far north as the eastern Sierra? Only one time. We went, um, gosh, and it just escaped me. It was southern Sierra, and we went on, um, it was supposed to be a fire road, and we were left Costa Mesa, Newport Beach, after my dad got home from work, and we were going to come up, set up camp with some other folks, and this road, which was 20 miles or something, took us five hours to do. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and um, that was the last time we came up here. The first <laughs> time I saw the Eastern Sierra was when I rode my bike um, on a bikeathon for the Mono Lake Committee, mm-hmm. where we started in LA and we rode our bikes the last week of August and uh, came up and then ended up at Mono Lake. And I often share with folks that. You know, in riding your bike, you feel the terrain change, you're outside, you get to smell things. And I say that the Eastern Sierra reached in, grabbed my heart and soul, and hasn't let go. (laughs) That's, you know, that's kind of a a familiar uh, story that we've heard from many of our guests, that, that that's the way they have all felt when they first arrived in the Eastern Sierra you know, that feeling of, oh, my God, this is so amazing. I never want to leave. You know, it gets into your soul immediately. It really does. It really does. And I, some of us resonate with it and some don't. And um, for those of us who resonate, I think we really want to protect it and we want to enjoy it and we want to share it in responsible ways. And for folks who don't resonate, I fully understand. Go, go. Re- live and enjoy where you do resonate. And right. Right. So how did you get involved with the Eastern Sierra Land Trust? And and tell our listeners a little bit about what you're doing now. Sure. Well, I, um, I rode my bike around the world for a year, ended up in Houston for a couple of years, then got a job back in the Sierra Nevada with a group up based in South Lake Tahoe called the Sierra Nevada Alliance. And I worked, and they have member groups throughout the Sierra. So in working with them as their development director and then associate director, I learned of the position here opening up, or it had been Mm -hmm. open for a while. And I, you know, when I left the Eastern Sierra, because I lived in Levining for about three and a half, four years. And when I left, I thought, you know, I won't be coming back to live here. I'll be coming back to visit, but I won't have the opportunity to live here. And when I saw that job, this job, I I actually sat on it for about four months and finally applied. And after that, the process went pretty quickly and I was hired and I've been here now for seven and a half years, which is just, I can't believe it's been that long, but it's, um, <laughs> I'm here. So my husband and I, he wasn't my husband then. We, uh, we moved from South Lake Tahoe here. We were blessed to find some property out in 40 acres and we live out here and um, really have embraced the lifestyle of, you know, being so close to nature, being so close to outdoors, especially as we were saying during COVID. Well, Eastern Sierra Land Trust is a little bit unique um, with other nonprofits. We are a nonprofit. We're based in Bishop. Our service area is Inyo County, Mono County, Alpine County, 9% of the state of California. Right. That's big. (laughs) It's big. And let's just add this. We also work in Western Nevada. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So because the water doesn't end at the state line, you know, the watershed continues across, the migration corridors continue. And of course, some of the larger ranches the landowners have ranches in, in both locations and some actually almost cross boundaries. Right. So, so we work to support private landowners in finding protection tools if they're interested in protecting their land. So in our mission, 
we say willing landowners because that's one of the misnomers about a land trust. In fact, when I first moved here, we had somebody come to give us an estimate to do some land, not landscaping, but tractor work out in Mm -hmm. the yard. And he asked why I was here. I said, I just started this new job. And he said, oh, you're the organization that steals land and gives it to the government. (gasps) And I thought, oh, gosh, no, that's not it at all. That's not it at all. It, um, it, It was an immediate lesson that there's a lot of confusion about our work and what land trusts do in general. So we work with private landowners who want to look at tools to help protect their land. And our mission actually says that we try to protect land for scenic, agricultural, natural, recreation, historical, as well as watershed values. So we're looking at protecting land from a very broad spectrum. Now, the filter mm-hmm. is big right. because, you know, recreation here, we need to make sure people can still do that. And agriculture is a huge component of our economy up here. Right. So, so we work with willing landowners who would like to look at tools to protect their land. And the main tool that we look at right now is called a conservation easement. And it's a, it's a very complex legal binding tool. And it's a, a contract between the landowner and Eastern Sierra Land Trust. Mm-hmm. And then we fold in funders. So mm. basically, I'm gonna, it's a really weird, this is simplifying it crazily but say someone say a rancher wants to put a conservation easement on their ranch we're an accredited land trust as well we're one of only 1700 um, in the nation who are accredited mm-hmm. which means we've gone through a tremendously rigorous process uh, organizationally structurally we, we uphold intense practices so we can only pay fair market value for anything and that helps so that you know, people want to take a uh, deduction on their taxes. You know, this just keeps things clean and right. straight and mm-hmm. shenanigans that anybody can do. Right. So by paying fair market value, we have a qualified appraiser who goes to the property and will evaluate the property for what it is right now. You know, are there roads? Is there electricity? Is it year round? Is it connected to another ranch? How sustainable is this ranch? Um, is there water? Are there pastures? You know, all of those things. And then they look at the county general plan and see, okay, if this property was built out, subdivided, developed in accordance with the county plans, what would that look like? And what's the value there? So the difference between what it is now as, the say, a working ranch, what it might be if it was built out, that's basically the price of the conservation easement. Oh, wow. What we do is we, I mean, we, we do this for a bunch of reasons, right? We're protecting the conservation values on the property and the economic viability of, of these ranches. But what we do is we buy the development rights and then we extinguish them through a legal process that is then attached to title, mm-hmm. the escrow process, and it is we only do easements in perpetuity. So that easement is then attached to that land forever, forever. The landowner can sell the land. You can have multiple landowners that land. This is not land ownership, right? This is the development rights and then the protection of the conservation values. So we often say that we hold a conservation easement over the land. 
the landowner, say it's a working cattle ranch, which we may have an example here of in a moment, um, they manage their land. We don't manage the land. You know, they, mm-hmm. we monitor annually to make sure that the conservation values are being upheld. And um, there's a, we do a huge report. It's called the baseline report at the time that we close escrow. And that's basically the snapshot of um, the situation on the ground, conservation values, um, ecological situations, biodiversity. And that is the document that we refer to every year going forward, knowing that some years have drought, there's going to be different situations on the ground. Some years are going to be wetter, there's going to be more, um, you know, that changes, climate change is going to change things. Right. Basically, with those parameters, that's what we're, that's our legal responsibility is to uphold those conservation values. So basically, if I understand this right, Kay, if if a, you negotiate with a rancher to get a conservation easement, they continue to be a rancher like they've always been. They can sell their ranch to another rancher who can come in and be a rancher so long as they're within those same parameters or what have you. But they just can't like build condos or they can't build a hotel or they can't. Is that, that what I'm Correct. hearing? Okay. Correct. Basically, the protections that we put in, we extinguish the building rights. Maybe on a large ranch, the landowner says, you know, I can't speak for my heirs three generations from now. Right. I'd like to hold a development right to build one additional home or something like that somewhere on the ranch. And that's, we negotiate, we work with that, and that's completely, you know, reasonable. And if it is a ranch, also, there's the area that we call the homestead, which is you know, the farming operation, there's different, um, there's less restrictions in the homestead than there is outside the homestead because it's a working ranch. We want to make sure it's viable and, and, you know, barns can be repaired, appropriate fences can be put up in the right places. Yes. The, the land can be transferred, uh, when they are, if they are selling a conservation easement, that income goes to whatever they want. Right. Um, we know some folks have used it to retire and then put um, uh, to turn it over to the next generation. Others mm-hmm. have invested. We had one landowner uh, some number of years ago who said, I have to close by, you know, I'm going to make the day date up mm-hmm. August 15th mm-hmm. because there's a big um, auction of cattle and I want to go buy more cattle. So I need to have <laughs> funds in my bank account. Wow. So that was our target date right? was a couple days before that. So, so when this tool works, it can be a great tool. It doesn't work all the time. You right. know, there's always challenges, but when it does work, it's a great way to keep, you know, ranchers are on such a tight margin. So this is a way that there can be an investment. Right. We have one landowner last year who um, targeted purchasing some additional rangeland, and, and mm. you know, so it's a way to get investment into their business it's a way to protect the land. And um, again, like I say, it is in perpetuity. So um, like Bridgeport Valley will look like Bridgeport Valley or, you know, places mm-hmm. where these ranches are will not be subdivided and turned um, per the county rules, whatever could be built there. You know, county general plan might say, oh, a condo can't go there, but you could build uh, 20 units. You right. know, 20 individual houses over 80 acres or something. Right. So right. That, goes, that goes away. So um, I mentioned, you know, Benton Hot Springs and Bill Bramlett uh, yeah. already. And um, can you talk about some recent, recent 
deals you've done or oh thank you so much (laughs) isn't that amazing that we just announced and uh, we're in the process of rolling out this news there'll be um um more details next week but yes we did just complete a conservation easement over the honeywell ranch at bridgeport valley and um so just if you hear something in my voice (laughs) i'm gonna tell you that people who know me know that when i am inspired I can get emotional Mm -hmm. and I was didn't think this was going to happen, but here it is. I'm, this is an amazing project with an amazing family. And the fact that that ranch is now protected with the conservation easement in perpetuity is huge. And the Honeywells were amazing. We, there's always challenges, but of course this is 4,100 acre ranch. That's just a lot of stuff. And then getting funding right there, we have to also secure funding and um, then to move things through, we have to get appraisals and they have to be approved. And there's, you know, questions on title. I mean, just think about, they own that ranch for 160 years. There was some title work that, you know, nobody knew about that had to, (laughs) you know, way back when just, those are the little things, the checks and balances and the due diligence that we have to do. Can you tell Um, us real briefly, Kay, can you tell our listeners where the Honeywell Ranch is situated? Sure. It's in the middle of Bridgeport Valley. So if you go to um, Bridgeport and then you take the road up to Twin Lakes, you will, as you're going through the big meadow, um, you'll see a turnoff dirt road on one corner and it says Circle H. And that is the road that goes out to the ranch. It is private property. it, they do have a working guest ranch, but you need to call and talk to them and, and see when it's appropriate to come out. It isn't just a place where folks can go and um, wander right. about. Right. It is private property. And do they have cattle on that ranch too? Is yes. It, oh yeah. It's a, ranch? it's a working cattle ranch. They have a lot of cattle. They have a lot of horses. And in fact, the guests who sign up to work and visit the uh, guest ranch actually help with the operations. It's um, really cool. And one other thing that is just, I think they're the last ones in the, in the region who do this. They literally walk their cows from bridge, from the ranch in Bridgeport to their ranch in uh, Smith Valley. I think it's in early November. It depends on the weather, right? This is Mm -hmm. all weather dependent, but they, I think it's a four day, five day walk. And they, instead of transporting via vehicle, they walk their cows. It's really cool. I haven't been cool. on it. I've seen it, but yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So it is really, if you know Bridgeport at all or that valley, it is one of the most stunning scenic panoramas of the Eastern Sierra. It's so beautiful. And now it's going to stay that way, right? Yep. Yeah. It's, it is predominantly protected with conservation easements. There are already several there. Um, Centennial Ranch has one. Um, there was another one that we completed, I guess, about two years ago called Shirani Point Ranch. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one that uh, California Rangeland Trust, which uh, they put one in before we started. Uh, so uh, the majority of the valley is protected. There are still some some uh, parts of it that we hope to work with the landowners and uh, continue protection me- methods there. So. That's great. I think it's marvelous. So there's some other stuff that the Land Trust does, right? Because I first discovered you through Mm -hmm. educational programs. Exactly. Exactly. We we feel like, you know, how many of us are ranchers and how many of us have thousands of acres that we want to protect? 
it's a small group. Right. So mm-hmm. how can we connect with other folks? So we do that. We have a program called Community Connections. And we have our, we certify pollinator gardens, we do outreach events, we do deer migration walks. So we try to educate people about uh, who we are, what we do, and also why it's important to be doing it. Because right. like you said, if we can protect the habitats before we have to help introduce the species, then, right. you know, that's where we are. And so that's also why we're doing a lot of work with sage grouse, the bi-state sage grouse. We're trying to protect their habitat. Um, and we do the working ranches that this, it's the same habitat, but you know, cause when we protect a ranch, the deer go through it, right. all, everything can go through it. So it works for critical habitats. It, it works cause we have working farms and ranches program. We have a critical habitat program and then we have community connections, connections, which is where we try to, you know, connect with our community. We try to be good neighbors. We try to be a part of, um, living here. And mm-hmm. uh, we do that in all those different ways. The pollinator garden is a super populated, popular project. I love that. Cause you can, I, we, my partner and I have done it twice now, I think where you can kind of tour around the communities and see people who, who've gotten certified pollinator gardens and get ideas from them. Yep. That's the uh, tour that we do. We obviously couldn't do that this year because of COVID, but we're looking at ways to do it um, in the future, we're, we're trying to collect videos that we can show, you know, gardens in multiple seasons. So we, we basically, you know, we closed our office mid-March. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody started working remotely. We had to set up secure channels. And our AmeriCorps member, Marie, who, run, who ran our Community Connections program, we just had to pivot on a dime and say, okay, how are we going to do our pollinator workshops? And instead of having it a half-day in-person event, we did a series of uh, webinars right? Uh, where we had guest speakers come in and, and talk, and they were really popular. So we try to be a good neighbor through the Community Connections by educating people about what we do and who we are. And uh, when we can do in person, you know, we welcome people into our garden. We have the demonstration garden at the office, which is still there. So folks can come. Mm-hmm. And it's been 10 to 2. We've been coming to the office. You know, we've been rotating a staff through there. It's not just shut down. But the demonstration garden is a great way to go and look because there's little plaques. So you can see the name of the plant, common as well as uh, Latin. And then you can see what the plant looks like in the different seasons. Right. Cool. We went, Christopher and myself, we participated in one of the deer migration talks um, earlier before COVID. And it was so interesting. We learned, we learned so much. So, you know, the programs are really, that you put on are so valuable and and rich and, um, you know, they're just, they're wonderful that we can access them here. Thank you. Thanks. You know, we really try to balance, not balance, uh, that almost sounded wrong, but you know, there's the science of things. There's right. the, um, the natural resources that need protected. And that that's real information that we want to convey. And then we don't want to forget, we don't want to just talk about species and biodiversity and acres and numbers. We also want to remind people about how you feel when you're out in nature and you see that beautiful deer in its natural habitat. Yeah. And what that feeling does for all of us is what we're trying to remind people about and, and keep places where we can all do that. Yeah, absolutely. 
And people can find out more about the Eastern Sierra Land Trust at your website, right? Which is, is it ESLT? ESLT.org. You sure can. And um, my email, K-A-Y at ESLT.org. Folks can always send me an email and um, I'll be glad to set up a time to talk in sure. any questions because it the conservation easement is an odd tool and it's uh, I'd love to talk more about it but it it can be wormholes so um, <laughs> I you know it's it's fascinating conversation for people who want to learn that wormhole but if you don't you know we can keep it on the um, let's talk about our book club and our sunflower kids and the deer right. migration tour there's so well, much going on we'll yeah. put those links in our show notes for our listeners so they can access them and know where to find you. But Kay, what do you like to do when you are not working for the land trust? Great question. And I would say that that is a personal goal of mine to have more time where I set aside. Um, I love this organization and I, I do work a lot to, to help try to move it forward. Pre-COVID, you know, hikes and walks and canoe trips or kayak trips and um, bike rides. Post-COVID, I've been, I have a um, a compromised immune system. So I've been really, really careful. I think I've gone to Bishop eight times since March. And most of that has been to go to the title company or the bank or the grocery store. That's it. Right. So with being careful like that, I, uh, my garden is awesome this year. (laughs) (laughs) Great. That is so great. And hopefully you found time for reading. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you probably, you know, ESLT started a book club this summer. That was part of our online and it was really uh, well accepted. People loved it. That is a program that our AmeriCorps member runs and that's an 11 month um, service term. And Marie just, she stayed with us for two years, which is the most folks can stay. So she just left and we, our new AmeriCorps member is coming in about two weeks, maybe Great. three. And mm-hmm. so we will start the book club back up. Oh, that's nice. wonderful. Yeah, it'll Marie be very terrific. I know big shoes to fill. Big shoes but, uh, to fill. Did you have you guys read Miracle Country yet? Um, you know, Kendra Atley yeah. works book, right? <laughs> Everyone is, yeah, I know, that's great. I know, and I had an opportunity to interview her as part of our recent event. And if folks want to, that interview is on our website, you just have to navigate to it. I think I'm not actually sure where it is, I think it's through events or lands and legacy, but it's uh, free, and mm-hmm. you can listen to the interview where Kendra talks more about the book and how and why. And it's really nice. It's really nice. But the book that I'm reading right now Mm -hmm. is called this, I believe. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's the personal philosophies of remarkable men and women. And it's a collection of short stories um, of inspiration Mm -hmm. of pain and loss and rebirth and how we can hold on to light and hope right now so uh, that's what i'm reading sounds like we all need to read a book like that or that to read that book right i know i've I've heard of this book i'm just looking it up now oh it was an was it an npr pick you know i don't know i don't know this was given to me um i 
um, I was asked to give a, a, a talk about why I believed in ESLT's work at right. a national land trust organization. And I was given this book to help me. And mm-hmm. uh, this was about two years ago that I did it. And I've, I found that in my personal, I don't know if struggle is the right word, but my, mm-hmm. the navigation of um, trying to find healthy, positive pathways between work, COVID, private life, family responsibilities, the world situation, that I needed to take a little time away and find, search out those little bits of joy and peace. And I, that's why I returned back to this book, because it's, it's in here and it's helping me. That's great. I'm, I'm reading the blurb right now. It, it, I guess it takes the con the structure from um, an old radio program in the fifties that Edward R. Murrow hosted oh. called this, I believe. And it looks like NPR resurrected it in 2005 as a weekly segment. And as you say, brought in so many different, different people to contribute. It's fascinating. Yeah. I'm adding it to my list right now. I recommend it. For me, there's some parts of it that, you know, don't resonate. And so you go to the next one. So (laughs) that's a great great thing about essay books. (laughs) It really is, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So is there, so you recommended Miracle Country. You're currently reading this, I believe. Is there any other book that you would recommend to our listeners right now? Uh, No, I don't think so. Well, actually, let me, that's not true. I can't. A book was just recommended to me. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Um, if we can just wait a minute. Sure. A couple of our donors sent it to me, sent the uh, recommendation to me. Um, Sorry to put you on the spot. No, <laughs> that's the cool thing about this stuff, right? You can um, uh, hear it. No, that's not. Oh, yes, here it is. It is called Deep Creek by Pam Houston. And he says that Pam Houston lives on a 120 acre ranch in Colorado at 9,000 feet. And it's her story of living on the ranch with her animals and the trials and tribulations she encounters. I love this book. I I highly recommend it too. You should put it in your to read pile. Okay. You will love it. We have it at the library. Um, But yeah, I I love that book. So um, cool. I'm so glad. It's nice, you know, you connect with people over what books they're reading, right? There's something else we can talk about aside yeah. from fishing and COVID. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there's, there's, and I hate to use the word, but I, it's fair. It's honest. And um, I try to be transparent. Sometimes I need a break. Sometimes yeah. I need to step aside. And sometimes I need not to be so worried about everything. I need to step back and, and let my soul replenish a little bit and find that time out. And yeah. um, maybe it's through watching a Hallmark Channel movie. Maybe it's through listening to a spy novel. And and then sometimes it's the reconnecting with nature and place that, you know, it propels me. It propels Absolutely. me forward. Well said. I'm so glad you said that. I'm, I'm the county librarian. I didn't pay you to say any of that, but you, <laughs> no. you nailed it. <laughs> Well, reading is important. <laughs> it's, it's the best PSA we've had for libraries on this podcast in a long time. <laughs> well, I'm so glad. <laughs> it's real. Kay, thanks so much. It was such a delight to talk with you and learn more about the Eastern Sierra Land Trust and 
all the good work that you all are doing. And thank you for doing that work. Yeah, That's absolutely. So thank you. And, you know, we couldn't do it without the support of um, so many people. And I just, I want to take this opportunity to thank you guys and everybody else who is a support a supporter of our work because we can't do it alone and we right. need everybody with us. So thank you absolutely. so much. Thank you. Um, Thank you again. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for this episode of the Oxygen Star podcast. Please remember, if you have a chance, to subscribe to our podcast if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Instagram at O2Starved or our website, OxygenStarvedPodcast.com. We appreciate you supporting us, listening, leaving us comments. Um, we, we like your ideas and want to hear more from you. So in the meantime, thank you again, Kay. Thanks, Christopher and Doug. Hope you all have a great week. Stay safe. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Star. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod in Competech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.